Hey everybody, John Heilman here and welcome to part two of this very special two-part episode of Hell and High Water with the visionary film and television director, Alan Hughes. In part one, Alan told us all about Dear Mama, the epic five-part documentary series he directed and has coming out soon about the life and times of Tupac and Fanny Shakur, the first episode of which will premiere at the Toronto International Film Festival on September 15th and the rest of which will be aired to all of us, to the general public, on FX. At some point later this year, they haven't set a date for that yet, but we all can't wait, at least if you're a fan of Tupac and who isn't. Hughes, close friends with Shakur, and he talked about his experiences of knowing and working with a legendary rapper, being beaten almost to death by Tupac's gang member friends when there had been a falling out between Alan and Pac. He talks about the complex relationship of Tupac and his mama, Fenny, the famous slash infamous Black Panther, the West Coast, East Coast feud that led to so much senseless violence in the 1990s rap world, and the somewhat mysterious or maybe not that mysterious circumstances surrounding Tupac's murder in Las Vegas over the weekend of a Mike Tyson title bout in 1996. If you haven't listened to part one yet, hit the pause right now and go back and check it out. And then after that, smoke a bong hit, drink a beer whatever, and come back here for part two, in which we discuss Hughes' groundbreaking career, including hit movies he directed like Menace to Society and Book of Eli, starring Denzel Washington, and his four-part HBO documentary series that sort of changed the game for docs across the premium streaming and cable stratosphere, that show called The Defiant Ones, about Jimmy Iovine and Dr. Dre, two titanic figures in the music business and in popular culture more broadly. Hughes also gives us the lowdown on what's going on. The Marvin Gaye biopic that he has in the works. There's a script that's been written. There's even been somebody, I believe now, chosen to play Marvin Gaye. I can't see who that is, and Alan won't either, but that movie is going to go into production in 2023. We get to talk to Alan about his ideas about the movie here in this podcast ahead. That is a real treat. I don't want to waste any more of your time talking about what you're about to hear. Let's just go hear it. And so without any further ado, here we are. Here we go. Part two of our talk with Alan Hughes on Hell and High Water. All right, so let's kick this off here, Alan, our little walk down memory lane and our deep dive into the Hughes oeuvre, oeuvre, that French word I can never pronounce. Here's a scene, part of what is now a legendary opening scene of the first movie that you and your brother Albert made together back in 1993. The movie is Menace to Society. And just to set that scene a little bit, we are in a convenience store in the inner city with two young African-American men who are about to engage in a pretty horrifying act of violence. This is it, first scene, or at least part of the first scene, from Menace to Society. Yes, pay and leave. Hey, man, I said I'm gonna pay you. Won't you calm your motherfucking nerves? Damn, how do y'all plan to go? Hey, man, won't you go ahead and get in the shit? I got your back. Shit. Get my chain. And won't you give my homeboy a chance? I don't want any trouble. Just get out. Can't stand y'all. I feel sorry for your mother. What you say about my mama? You feel sorry for who? I don't want any trouble. Just huh? get out. The fuck you say about my mama? I don't want any trouble. Just huh? get out. You talking you shit? How many times I come to this motherfucker? You got so sick. Yeah, yeah. Give me the motherfucking video tape. Give me the motherfucking video. Stop bring the give me the motherfucking video tape right now. Hey nigga, hey, clean the cash back. Come on. Shut up. Shut hey, the fuck up with that noise. Hey, you gotta shut the fuck up. I ain't playing. Hey, what the motherfucking tape at? What the fuck did you do, man? Fuck right now. I said eject. Bitch, if you don't eject, I'ma smoke your punk. Hey, bitch, do it right now. Bitch, I told your stupid ass. Shut the fuck up. Nigga, hurry up. Come on, man. Let's race up, man. Damn. Come on. Get it. Nigga, I thought I told you to open the damn register. Damn, damn nigga. Go. Come open this shit. What the f Six motherfucking do dollars, nigga. I know y'all got some money in this motherfucker somewhere. This, this, this don't even make no damn sense, man. Let's Fucking just go, man. Goddamn ready to tell Stop. I'm gonna keep your shit, too. Fuck. Jackpot. Kill me. Gang of this money, nigga. Shit. See, so you ain't gonna talk shit now, are you? Where all the money at, man? Fuck that. Fuck that. Go! 
went to the store just to get a beer, came out an accessory to murder and armed robbery. It was funny like that in the hood sometimes. You never knew what was going to happen or when. After that, I knew it was going to be a long summer. 19? 20 when we did that. 20 when we made it. 1993. This movie was a fucking phenomenon. Mm -hmm. Sensation. Obviously made your incredible debut. Critical success. Won awards. You guys have done some videos, but on this scale. Mm -hmm. How much movie cost to make? Three million. Yeah. So the reason I wanted to play the first scene, right, was because people were shocked also by it. And I want to talk in a second about like the context of hood movies and, and where this came, because that's, I think, interesting. But did you know that part of the thing that grabbed everybody about this in 1993, there was not a movie that had gone this far. Here's a bunch of fucking violence in your face that's going to be like, whoa, mm -hmm. you know, like that's a... Mm -hmm. Those are the heroes of the movie. Oh, yeah. Just executed, <laughs> ex executed that, yeah, that poor Asian man. couple. Yeah. Like it was shocking to people and also incredibly compelling, right? Did you get when you were making it that like the way that the whole movie played, but particularly like that's the first two minutes of the movie, right? Mm -hmm. That that was going to have the effect that it had on people? We hoped and we planned for it to be that way, but you never know because we thought the movie was terrible. Um, <laughs> Uh, we were shocked. The response to the movie was exactly what we dreamed for times a hundred. Yeah. yeah, we planned and hoped for it because, again, now I don't want this to go out of context here. Spike Lee used to run around saying when Ebert or Cisco would go off on his films, he would say, I don't make my films for white people. I make my films for black people, which at the time was appropriate. It really was. We made this movie for white people. I was going to say. <laughs> yes, totally. And it goes back to my George Clooney comment. Yeah. You know? Being biracial, white men don't need to be saved. White people do not need to be saved. <laughs> right? um, but you do need to wake them up to understand or feel and empathize or sympathize, whatever that thing is, so they can go, oh, I didn't know that. And it has to come with a punch in the mouth, usually. You know, and I don't mean that literally. It bothers me, and it still bothers me, because I can go off on other parts of liberal Hollywood right now and some big, big, giant directors that I've met and they were heroes of mine. They never shared their knowledge with women, people of color. And even when we blew up, we never got that mentorship. But we did know one thing that most of our peers didn't know because of my mother. Like a Fanny put in the Tupac, we were very aware of the culture and society and the ills and the this and the that. But artistically, my mother nourished us off the charts. And she's an Armenian woman, you know. And we grew up in black communities, but when I say artistically, we got the art from the, clearly in spades from the black side, right? Yeah. But from her side, what we got was an understanding of like repetition, practice, studying things that if, if we wanted to be swimmers, there's no black swimmers, there's no yeah. swimming pools in the inner city, yeah. right? My mother was smart enough to find a way to get us the equipment. That's what set us apart from our contemporaries at the time was that we had a thorough understanding of the power of cinema. I don't think that we were good yet. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Look at that scene. Yeah. But we had an understanding of the power of, of and one of my obsessions of, of sound and how to move a crowd to get them to wake up to understand. Yeah doesn't matter how good the story is, it's the execution of the story. So I, long-winded way of saying, didn't like the movie, but loved the effect that it had on culture. Because I will tell you, when we were 21, when it came out, I mean, people of all cultures, but mostly just to have white people grab me yeah. and go, oh my God, until I saw that film, I, I didn't know. Right. I didn't know. I got a lot of that, and that, that meant the world to me because right. they did know. They just saw a nigga running on the news yeah. from a helicopter vantage sure, point. Sure. And they don't, I remember pitching that to New Line going, they go, why is this so different? There's all these hood films out now. Right. What makes Menace so different? I go, you guys see the black kid running from the cops on cops or from the helicopter. Why is that kid running? I remember saying that. Yeah. Who is that kid? Yeah. How did he get that way? Yeah. You know, 88. Colors comes out. The movie Colors, Colors right? Yeah. Dennis Hopper directs Sean Penn, Robert Duvall. It's a story about the L.A. gang thing. It's the Daryl Gates, Rampart kind of world. But it's a white movie. Mm -hmm. White stars about the gang problem that the white police are dealing with. Mm -hmm. right? From 88 to 91, something changes, right? Mm -hmm. New Jack City comes out in 91. Boys in the Hood comes out in 91. Boys in the Hood, big important movie. Obviously, we talked about Singleton. I mentioned it earlier, right? Like, you guys are making this movie in the context of those two movies. How did you guys think about that? My question, if I were at New Line, wouldn't have been, how is it different from all these? Boys in the Hood was a phenomenon. It was. Right? It was and a massive. brilliant film. Mm -hmm. 
in a lot of the same ways you're talking about Menace, how did you guys think about what you were doing? Because to me, Menace is just harder. Boys in the Hood is like a romantic, it's like, here I'm gonna show you what it's like in this world. But these are very sympathetic characters. Mm -hmm. They're not as sympathetic in Menace Society. Mm -hmm. It's a harder version of it. And it tells you how the increments of the way that white audiences and black artists are presenting those kind of realities. Yeah. It really tonally is different, right? But I want you to talk about how you guys were thinking about it because you're making it in the wake Oh, yeah, of yeah, yeah. Boys in the Hood. Yeah. Do you think of it as kind of a sequel? What was your view about that? We were more hardcore thinking back then. I think that we looked at New Jack City and enjoyed it because that was the first, really, you yeah, know. Yeah. Uh, but it was more like a music video. You yeah, know? yeah, yeah, yeah. Very stylized, very glamorous. You know? Yeah, it and was. Very, it was a glamour puss movie, right? And very I mean, New like, York. Yeah, it's very you know? New York, yeah. New York, they don't have Kalishnikovs for some reason. <laughs> we got those out here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know? They don't have race and space. It's not a car culture. L.A. is, when you have a car culture, you've got that trunk that you can put those AKs in, yeah. you know, and do drive-bys. We grew up on those classic noir gangster films, even the original Howard Hawks, Scarface, 1932, 15-car drive-by. Like, we studied this stuff, you know? Not like an academic film school studies, either. We were just doing on our own. When Boys came out, we were scared because I had already had the script written, and then this movie was coming out. And at the time, I was with Eazy-E. Dre had just left, and NWA was number one with that second album, which is, was more like a rock album. So I'm learning a lot from Easy. We go see Boys in the Hood with Easy. And I remember it because I was jealous. And then we were both jealous, me and my brother, going, damn, he's getting everything, but this is good, you know. And But oh, wait, no, this, okay, this is that. We're making Mean Streets Goodfellas. It made us double down on the heart. And what I learned from Easy through osmosis, it's funny, we don't talk about like other forms of learning. I learned a lot from being around people, not them going, you should do this and do that. But Easy was a theme guy. Easy was a concept guy. Easy was a guy that taught me a lot about like, what's so different about you? And whatever that is, if it's the shit, how do you magnify it? He taught me that. Yeah. You know? And I think with Menace, I think I'm also come from the school of Jimi Hendrix and Eric Clapton at age old, like, you want me to go first? Yeah. No, you go first. Right. And when someone else goes first, you get the advantage of going, oh shit, I know how to hit this. I know what notes to hit. And, and so Boys in the Hood was a message film. Menace Society was a statement film. Yeah. Yes. That's the difference. Yes. Right. Okay. That's perfect. So I'm going to fast forward past, you guys made Dead Presidents, had more historical, had the, the, all the Vietnam stuff that was in it. But Dead Presidents and Menace Society are clearly like companion pieces in a way. One's like kind of present, one's historical, but like mm -hmm. here's the why for this that goes back to societal conditions in Vietnam and all that stuff, right? Book of Eli comes out 2010. And I don't know, you're gonna just tell me I'm fucked up when I say this, but I always have thought like, are you a Kendrick fan? You like Kendrick? Yeah, right? yeah. So Good Kid, Mad City to me is part of a trilogy. Boys in the Hood, Men's Society, and Good Kid, Mad City, and mm -hmm. Kendrick's basically making the album version of what that is down yeah, the absolutely. line. To me, yeah. those things are like all part of the same, mm -hmm. right? So let's play a little bit of Book of Eli and we'll talk about that and how it all connects on the other side. I grew up with it. I know its power. If you read it, then so do you. That's why they burned them all after the war. It just staying alive is an act of faith. Building this town is an even bigger act of faith, but they don't understand that. None of them. And I'd have had the right words to help them, but the book does. I admit. I've had to do things, many, many things. I hate to build this, I confess that. But if we have that book, I wouldn't have to. I imagine. Imagine how, how, how different, how righteous this little world could be if we had the right words for our faith. Well, people would truly understand why they're here and what they're doing, and they wouldn't need any other uglier motivations. It's not right to keep that book hidden away. It's meant to be shared with others. It's meant to be spread. Is that what you want? With all my heart and soul. I always believed that I'd find a place where this book belonged, where it was needed. I haven't found it yet. I love this guy. First of all, Denzel. Oh my God. You know, and Gary Oldman, two great actors. 
Denzel's like Jesus. Oh my God. He's like a superhero Jesus, right? Mm -hmm. You know, incredible fight scenes in this movie. The book is the Bible. In this post-apocalyptic landscape, he's got the, the Bible, eventually ends up at, at San Quentin or which? Oh, uh, you know, uh, Alcatraz. Alcatraz. Alcatraz, yeah. You know, orally reciting the Bible and it becomes part of the saved literature, right? The movie's all about redemption, mm -hmm. right? I mean, to me. But just talk about the way in which you think that there's a through line in your work between the menace dead president stuff, which is very clear, and this, which is fantasy, yep. you know, and, and high metaphor. But again, to me, it seems like there's a connection between these movies that I'm not going to cast my interpretation on it, but talk to a way, the way in which you think it's part of a whole. You know, it's funny. I never, John, I mean, I never thought about it. But in me, and I was the script story guy in that partnership, yeah. actor guy. I just think I'm learning now there's this deep yearning for like this moral compass and what is right and what is wrong and why is it right and why is it wrong and who's going to make it better. And I never thought about the connection there because I know when I did um, Defiant Ones, I remember Dr. Dre said something to me. The one thing he asked me, he goes, Alan, you've got to make it inspiring. You've got to make this inspiring. And I remember laughing inside and going, he has no idea. There's no fucking way I can do that. <laughs> I don't do that. Yeah. All the films I've done with my brother and I did one by myself, the hero either dies or goes to prison. Every single one of them. <laughs> right. But now that I think about it, I think that the book of Eli represented for me, like just trying to grasp for some, what is it called, an equilibrium in a world of just complete and utter chaos and not nonsense. So to cut to that, which is what we were talking about earlier, that's the other side of a civil war, basically. Yeah. I'm not a Bible guy at all, right? But I do know that there's power and symbolism and belief, you know, and trying to find some hope. Because you're like, when everything is lost, I think I was searching for that. I'm always struggling with that thing, like, what we were just talking about, like, I want to go to Spain. Why do I want to go to Spain? Like, this shit is, it's a wrap, right? Yeah. This culture's finished. Yeah. But, Alan, you don't want to stay here and fight to fight? I'm not saying I won't scud missile in, or, but, like, where do you find the hope to move on? What that character, like, why is he moving on? Because he believes in something so near and dear, and there were moral things. Yeah. I didn't care that it was a Bible that I absolutely don't believe in. Right? Yeah. But yeah. the actual concept of the Bible, I think, is a great idea. Yeah. Right? yeah. <laughs> you yeah. Know? So. Well, it's, and it's, it, to me, it's interesting also because having captured a pretty apocalyptic landscape in the first two movies, I mean, in a different way, Menace Society and Dead Presidents are about an apocalyptic landscape mm -hmm. at that moment in a certain parts of urban America, right? This is a kind of a fantastical version of that. There's a degree of kind of hope and redemption in this movie. Mm -hmm. I had no idea what your relationship to religion was, but in, in Dead Presidents at the end, Martin Sheen, like iconic white man, judge, you're kind of with him when mm -hmm. the hero of the movie who's about to go to prison, his lawyer basically says, my client should be excused because he served with valor in Vietnam. And Sheen looks at him and like, what are you fucking talking about? I got the Pearl Purple Heart in World War II, which was a real war, <laughs> by the way. By the way. And then says, you've dishonored everything we learned as, mm -hmm. as soldiers. Very kind of old-fashioned, moralistic, mm -hmm. even though you're with the, the hero of the film, Martin's right about that. The judge mm -hmm. is right here. Mm -hmm. That kind of a very traditionalist view, the white guy with the judge who's laying down the shit against the sympathetic hero and saying, you've dishonored the core, mm -hmm. son. You're with him in the movie. And here, the woke left, like, you don't get to see a lot of things that are like the Bible. Mm -hmm. You're like, you don't even give a shit about religion, but you put the notion of the preservation mm -hmm. of the Bible in a post-apocalyptic environment by Denzel who kills a million people on the way, <laughs> by the way, which is fucking badass. But it's like, you don't see that. It never was a conflict. You never thought to yourself, man, I don't want to be religious. No. You're like, no, this is... No. It. I appreciate the value of it, but you remember at the end where it was placed. Yes. You know, amongst all the... Great literature. Yeah. Though there were preserved great literature. And the Quran, Quran and the yes. Torah. Yes. You know, right. yeah. um, it's funny when you said I'm just processing it in real time right now. It's like, when you look at all three of those films in particular, even American Pimp, what is that moral line? Right. And when are we on this side of it? And then when we get to that side of it and why and how? And it's just so interesting to me. I think I'm right now in the middle of it with this five parts with the yeah. dear mama just going. I get goosebumps thinking about it like, damn, what are the beacons of hope and leadership and community that's real? Yeah. Because what I wanted to say earlier was I'm thankful for Trump about a couple like real elemental fundamental things. I was a high school dropout. Yeah. So I never got a proper civics lesson. Yeah. Trump was like a bad case of food poisoning. We're like, oh, I didn't even know I had a pancreas or a liver or and how it works. 
I learned more about the institutions of government and how it works through his just bull in a china shop bullshit he was doing and just disregard for everything. But ultimately, when January 6th came, I went, oh, shit, I never thought about this before. There's no such thing as laws. Natural law, that's a real thing. Laws are only, these are ideas. Yeah. And ideas are only as powerful as the people who believe in them. Right. That's what Trumpism is showing. Like, you talk about moving the goalpost. Right. Getting back to the morality answer I'm at right now. There's no such thing as laws. It's a concept. Right. It's, it's all bullshit. To put it in a slightly different way, but I, I, I know what you're saying. So it's more like, oh, it turns out that a lot of this is held together not by laws, but by norms. And norms are just these social constructs people agree to or not. And they're, they're fantastic as long as yeah. there's close to 100% consensus that we all agree. Mm -hmm. And then someone comes along and goes, wait, that's not actually a law. I won't go to jail if I break that. That's just a norm. That's just an idea. That's just a stipulation. Fuck that. And then you go, wait, oh, wait, I thought that was like codified someplace. Oh, no, not codified. No, that was just a, that was just a consensual hallucination that we all had about what we all agreed to. No, that's not written down anywhere. It took you, a dumbass yes. with no shame. Yes. And by the way, all the charisma of a bad guy. People always go, well, bad guy. No, bad guy's got to have just as much star power as the good guy. So all that star power, dumb as fuck, absolutely no shame to smoke that out. I would say you kind of actually had to be all those things because everybody else is kind of like, well, if they thought about the norms, like, well, those are important. I'm going to stick to those. <laughs> it's like anybody who actually understood what a norm was yeah. was kind of like, oh, I'll, I should probably abide by that. You've got to be a dumb fuck to be like, well, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm just going to do whatever yeah, the fuck yeah. I want. It's all id. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah, all yeah, id. Yeah, it's just yeah. like, I want, I want, yeah, yeah. I want. All right. I don't necessarily want to take an ad break, but we have to take an ad break. So we're going to do that. And we'll be right back on the other side of these messages with the one and only Alan Hughes here on Hell and High Water. Welcome back to part two of our special two-part episode with Alan Hughes here on Hell and High Water. Defiant ones, you mentioned a second ago. Just play the trailer. There's so much to it. It's like, like all doc series that have this much complexity to them. I just want to play it to remind people there was once upon a time, not that long ago, when the high-end premium doc series didn't really exist. Oh, right. Yeah, and no. then here comes Defiant Ones, and, and everybody goes, whoa, fuck, here it is. And this is the Alan Hughes yeah. Defiant Ones trailer. Punch in a little bit later. Yeah. Check, check, check. We're talking about Jimmy and Dr. Dre. Jimmy Iovine is the levitator. Dre is the innovator. I need something a little bit more impressive. Bruce taught me a work ethic. I had to work harder than the next guy just to do as well as the next guy. And to do better than the next guy, I had to kill. I knew that I had to be a success at something. A friend of mine put together two turntables. I started doing this thing. I wanted to be able to get in there and rock. I think rattling home was Jimmy's last time. I think we broke him. I didn't want to see a studio. I was done. So I said, maybe I can start a record company. I gotta find great producers, and I produced them. First of all, it's great. Everybody loves it, and the storytelling is incredibly compelling. There are some who would say that the fourth hour is a mm -hmm. little bit too much of a commercial for Beats. Just let's just. And I want to talk about that. Let's just let's just be let's just be honest. That's just by be the honest. way, that's actually what happened in culture. <laughs> many, many of us are like, wow, these first three hours are great storytelling. Mm -hmm. This fourth one is like just a very yeah. slickly produced ad for Beats. Yep. Okay, all yep. good. I get it. You know, true. Yes. Okay, good. As long as we're all clear about that. This template for making high-end, slick, not old frontline style, like everything about it, stylistically, it's narrative aspiration, the insideness of it, the intimacy of it. Jimmy and Andrea's kind of moguls, culture makers, the story of how they came up first as artists and then became moguls and now are billionaires, mm -hmm. right? All of that it set so many things in motion. I mean, HBO had made great docs before yeah. Showtime Maker, but this kind of thing was new. That's not that long ago, 2018, right? Mm -hmm. 2017. 2017. Yeah. 2017. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So you won all the awards in 2018, mm -hmm. sorry. Mm -hmm. so, but that's not long ago. Five years ago, not that long ago. Mm -hmm. And now it's like, this is run amok. We have doc series like this, you know, expensive. The event, five-part, two-part yes, event. Yes, yes, yes. We're going to see with, with the Tupac yeah. uh, series. Again, you were doing something new with this in mm -hmm. a way. I mean, I know you had relationships with Dre and Jimmy that went back mm -hmm. a long time, but the notion of Pitch to HBO, I want to make this. Four yeah, yeah. hours that looks not like anything else. We're going to spend a fuck ton of money on for, a, for an unscripted series. What was the concept there that you were trying to execute and how you could sell it? 
Well, first off, you we're talking about two guys that aren't traditional stars or known. Right. Yes, yes, yes. Dre's a producer. Let's yes. not forget that. And and very private. Yeah, very private. Private. It started with Dre. I'm not proud of this video, but they loved it. Me and Dre reconnected in 2011 to make a video called I Need a Doctor. And it's Eminem like tearing Dre to shreds about like, get up, let's get you back in the in, in the game. Yeah. And I turned it into a little retrospective of his career, culminating to Easy es Tombstone with Dre and bringing it back. I've known Dre since I was 19. And then we set out to figure out how to bring his story to life. So I called the president of HBO at the time, Michael Lombardo, because here's what I'm interested in. I love artists and people or political figures that are mysterious. I love Sade. I would love to see a doc on Sade. You know, Dr. Dre represented that in hip hop to me, like that mysterious figure that we just don't know. Yeah. So he was in, called Michael Lombardo HBO, and I said, what if I told you I can get the most enigmatic hip hop artist to open up about his life? He goes, who? I said, Dr. Dre. I've never heard this over the phone. He said, green light, but we got one problem. Jimmy just walked out of here with an Interscope documentary. I said, I'll call you right back. Cause I went, oh shit. One of my favorite documentaries of all time is the battle over Citizen Kane. And it was PBS. And it told the story of William Randolph Hearst, older than this other prodigy, Orson Welles. Both doted on by their mothers. Yeah. Both brilliant in their own ways and how they they told a dual story, and when they collided, they destroyed each other. And I knew that when these two met, Jimmy and Dre, they didn't destroy each other. You know, they went to another level. Right. And I knew another thing about Jimmy. I said, this little motherfucker right here, who's a rock star in the corporate music business, yes. I said, he'll translate. A lot of times, these guys don't translate. Most suits don't. They don't translate. No. I said, Jimmy has something that none of these guys have. Jimmy, I knew, was willing to go there and pop shit. Yeah. Now, there is no last dance without this thing, yeah. because I know Michael Jordan was like talking about shivering about talking about anything. Yeah. It opened him up to, oh, we can pop shit and we can still be sexy. Yeah. Like that concept of you being in a dock and even having your enemies talk shit and you fire back, that, that had never been done. I mean, another, another way in which you broke the mold here <laughs> or like or introduced the new era. By the way, just even cursing at will. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, something as simple as cursing at sure, will. Sure, sure. Why did it take that long? To, <laughs> for people to talk the way you talk, talk you know? Yeah, sure. So I knew the fish rots from the head. If Jimmy was down, you make a pack with your subject. And I also knew something, because I'd rather see a documentary than watch feature film. I love docs. Right. I said, wow, why is it like of a hundred and something plus years of cinema, this is the only medium in cinema that has, it, yeah. it just stays in the same thing. It's, in, you know, it's just, it's not innovating. One, it's becoming more entertaining than the actual script and stuff because it's real people we're dealing with. And I knew all these things going in, but I also knew, I knew the cultures, I knew both sides. I love both sides, I love rock, I love hip hop. Yeah. Uh, I knew the cinema I wanted to bring to, I knew I get to do things with Ennio Marconi's music I've always wanted to do. A lot of that shit came yeah. in the moment, but what I really noticed, the innovation that really came was when everyone was trying to get me to use effects and digital and right. animation and whatever. And I just kept going, nope, if we couldn't cut it on a flatbed 70 years ago, analog, I'm not doing it. And I saw a moment in my favorite documentary, um, Errol Morris's Fog of War. There was a split second that Bob McNamara, that's, that, Bob goodness, McNamara yeah. it lingered on him for a split second. Yeah. And I went, what is that? Oh, I know, I'm a fuck with that. I'm, Cause I'm dealing with all these legends. So I told my crew, I go, even when I say cut, don't cut the camera. Leave right. it on, leave it on, leave it on. And then in the cut, we started developing what I call an empathy cut, where it just got like this, you know, like that, then it turned into that, then it turned into this, and then it turned into... And what you're seeing is all the subtext past the ascots, and anyone who had that veneer, it's gone now, yeah. you know? There was that one wonderful moment where, and I say wonderful because it's very revealing, where Jimmy's just, we cut to him, he's just on his phone, and I'm like, you want some water, Jimmy? I'm like clearing my throat. I'm fine. He's not even looking at me. And he gets up and walks out of the frame and the chair just sitting there. <laughs> and then five seconds later, he comes back and sits down, puts his phone down, and he starts to smile towards camera. And then you pre-lap audio from him at 2024. 20, and I was like, that's another version of the empathy cut. Right. And I was like, oh, shit, that is more revealing. By the way, I don't know what I'm going to use or not. I'm not trying to catch yeah, anybody yeah, yeah, either. Of course. I'm more proud of that film than anything I've ever done because, you know, I was f coming up on 45. I think in your 50s is when you're writing and storytelling, or they say attorneys, like you're in your prime. Yeah. And just to finally get through the dysfunction of a, a twinhood with my brother, a partnership yeah. of filmmaking, yeah. 
and finally get to go, man, getting my ass whipped one time too on a movie that was a disaster and just going, fuck this shit, man. Like, I'm going in. I'm going in because I know this medium right here should be right here. Thank God HBO got behind it because I wanted to market it. I wanted to eventize it. I loved it. Fine ones. thought it was great. I love the fusion, the place where art and culture and business, that mogul power thing. Power is like my topic, right? Defiant Ones to me is about power, how they translate artistic achievement and inspiration mm -hmm. and currency into business power. Not mm -hmm. that complicated, but that's what it is, right? And I was also watching the Tupac footage mm -hmm. you sent me. I'm like, man, these are really different movies. The Tupac thing is just very, it's, you know, we haven't shown any of it, but mm. it's very gritty. I mean, I know there's going to be famous people in it, but you watch those first couple of reels, it's all like normal people. I've never heard of these people. Mm -hmm. They're all really compelling, but man, it's gritty. There's no sheen, mm -hmm. no shine. It's mm -hmm. like different, right? Mm -hmm. I want you to talk about that difference because I think it's a, it's super interesting that these are the two doc series you do it in a row and they're so different. And they're also about two dyads, right? One's yeah. about the, about the Jimmy Dre dyad and others about Pac and his mom. Mm -hmm. I want to get into that difference and, and how you're processing that. You know, one thing that I am obsessed with since I was five years old or as far back as I can remember is iconography obsessed with it. Yeah. Whether it's the first time I saw Bob Fosse into Michael Jackson before Muhammad Ali, Bruce Lee, whatever it is. And the other thing that I got back to another great love of mine with HBO was like, I love marketing. I love marketing as it relates to like the way it looks, the way it feels. And they were empowering with me to yeah. do what I want. And yeah. I came up with that teaser campaign. That's one of them. And I realized I'm like, wow, because Jimmy and Dre were a little insecure about the title. Yeah. I said, no, I got a teaser campaign idea. It's Patti Smith and then Eazy-E and Stevie Nicks and then Snoop Dogg. And then I knew the black and white of it, you know? Yeah. But doing Dear Mama after the Defiant Ones, I go, oh, shit. It made me realize, because I was having, the first year I was really having struggles. It was uncomfortable for me spiritually. I don't know what I was going through. I wasn't happy. On, the, on, on your mom. On Dear Mama. I just wasn't happy because I couldn't figure out the language. Because normally when you make a, a record or you make a movie and, and you produce it the way the Defined Ones was made, you just do the simple thing of going, we're going to take that technique and use it on this subject now. That would be the smart thing to do. But... I was like, nah, there's no way I'm taking that. And the technique had, unfortunately, because it was so popular, every night, every week, I see this so-called empathy cut or clap stick, and I'm like, God damn, like, what is, what it, yeah, yeah. Defiant Ones was just a well-produced rock album. It was overly produced almost, right? And I, it occurs to me when you're talking about everything we talked about in this conversation with Afani and Tupac, it's a blues record. So I, every time I go in the cutting room, I'm like, strip it down, strip it down. We're not stripping down the layering of, audio innovation oh, no, yeah, we're yeah, doing yeah, but yeah, like yeah. as far as like yeah, all the, the emotional the emotional thing and the, and the production it's like it's just you just want raw. it to look raw just you raw. want it to feel raw yeah and dr dre is an international legendary figure right yeah. but he's not snoop and he's not too he, he says that i'm not i don't even like the way i sound i'm the producer yeah right the reluctant rapper yeah tupac is a bona fide global rock icon yeah. not just hip-hop yeah, yeah, he's yeah. one of the few people that actually transcended out of hip-hop to be a global icon his mother is just as powerful so it's just like when you go to see denzel and when i work with denzel you go don't cut this up just keep the camera on him he's the blues singer with the guitar why are you cutting away to other things yeah, yeah, this yeah. i believe in performances whether an, an editor just did something for me and i go oh shit, that's it or the b camera was in sync with the subject and it's one or two minutes on the B camera, yeah. I don't give a fuck. Right. Defiant Ones was Defiant Ones, and, and, and thank God it was a great cultural moment, yeah. and it represented everything you just said, power, capitalism, and also that thing of, we would put in the editing room, Dre was like Michael Corleone before he joined the family, and Jimmy's the godfather, and Michael's in that military uniform, he's still somewhat of a civilian, until Dre leaves death row, and he starts to learn the family business. Yeah. Dre's more of like a dog jimmy's more like a cat we would do all these little things you know yeah. but with dear mama it's a soulful journey yeah. it's a grounded yeah. salt of the earth journey it's hectic and, and has some you know crazy shit in it but it's just it's just more of a spiritual thing i think we're going to take one more short break and then we'll return for the rest the final piece of my conversation with alan hughes here on hell and high water Welcome back to the final part of our special two-part episode with Alan Hughes here on Hell and High Water. Last topic, you love performers. 
I said at the very beginning, I said, you know, you've got these two big, basically like swan song kind of things. I don't know. I, I'm not telling you you should retire. Although, I am. Although I can imagine <laughs> retiring. You know, like, you know, you do Tupac and then you do this other thing, which is the, the Marvin Gaye biopic. And, and you say you love performances, but you just go poke around the internet. You just, it's not like there's a vast quantity, but a couple things are incredible. I want to play this. The this acapella. Style. Oh, my They're, God. It's fucking crazy. How they fucking dug this out. Ooh, I bet you're wondering how I knew. About your plans to make me blue With some other guy you knew before Between the two of us guys You know I love you more It took me by surprise, I must say When I found out yesterday Don't you know that I heard it through the grapevine Not much longer would you be mine Oh, I heard it through the grapevine Oh, I'm just about to lose my mind Honey, honey, well I had never seen that thing before mm-hmm. And I, I have now watched it three or four times And I have an involuntary bodily reaction to it Like, I feel like I'm on ecstasy This wave of tingling I'm like, I mean, it's sick how talented he was oh my god i mean the voice is beyond beyond yeah. right and that actually shows it off i mean we can play a lot of things that for marvin sounds great but that's like a fucking crazy thing to hear right you said this thing about how the this was at the height of his of his freebasing yeah the audios from 68 or 67 the actual grapevine audio but the video is he lip synced in 80 i think it's a year before his death so he's at the height of his delusions right. and freebasing and right. coking if I could get Motown to be on board and we could have all the musical rights and I could have Dre and, and Jimmy as my producers, my executive producers backing me, I'd like, who the fuck wouldn't want to make a Marvin Gaye biopic? It's an incredible story. So it sounds like I sound like an idiot saying, why do you want to make a Marvin Gaye biopic? Like another guy's been talked about, you know, mm-hmm. a million things have been written, a million things have been shot. Like what's the, this is what the world needs to understand about Marvin Gaye that it doesn't already understand yeah. that will be in my movie. Well, I didn't know at the time, but you know, like, from as far back as I can remember, there was something about him and what you're saying about his voice where I was like, I don't know why I'm fucking with this dude, but I'm fucking with this dude. Like, I feel him. I, I feel his pain. I feel his joy. I feel his... Something about him is cinematic, and it was always cinematic to me. There was always a narrative in the measure. Like, he can hit one note, and he's also very controlled. He doesn't show off like a lot of singers do. He's very measured. It's very contained. It's all, like, tightly in there. In a buttery way, though, you know? So I knew that his music spoke to me, and it's in most everything I've ever done except for a film called From Hell because it was sh- set in 1888 London about Jack the Ripper. Yeah. That's about the only thing I've ever done that didn't have Marvin Gaye music in it. Yeah. And then when I got into discovering the journey, I always knew a little. We all knew his father shot him, and you know, this is a perfect Shakespearean whatever the fuck you want to say. I mean, not perfect, but Perfect for storytelling, right? But when I started digging deeper, and I go, oh my God, this guy comes from this crazy, marginalized, holy roller, Pentecostal religion that's almost an Amish sect of black Pentecostal Christian church. Like, normal holy rollers look at Marvin Gaye's father's church as crazy. Yeah. And the psychosexual repression that he experienced in that household his father also being, and I got to mind my words here in this modern culture, uh, like to dress in female clothes. I just say that behind closed doors. So his father was this radical, crazy preacher, Bible, Old Testament guy, but enjoyed privately cross-dressing. Yep. And when Marvin was five, every now and then, or eight, his father would show up to breakfast with no explanation, with a woman's wig on. I'm like, what is that? So you, you dive deeper, and there's physical abuse and sexual abuse and psychological abuse, obviously. And then there, what happens is there's this guy, this vulnerable, sweet soul that doesn't know how to accept love, doesn't know how to embrace real love in his life, but ultimately becomes the greatest communicator of love songs that ever lived. And also a sonic genius. If you hear the, the whole album, I, I Want You, and you hear the layering of his just vocal alone, that had never been done before. Usually background vocals yeah. or melodies and counter melodies yeah. were done by other people. Yeah. He says this schizophrenic. So there were voices in the, the alchemy. I'm fascinated by sonic geniuses. But the fact that he was able to transmute all this pain into these most sensual love songs you've ever... That's probably the number one thing about him that, that drew me to him is that 
the sensual, like all the senses get activated when you hear them, feel them. It's not just a love song. It's something deeper and more profound. And I wanted to explore where did that come from? And you find out as it is that it's very complicated. There's a tremendous amount of pain and obviously in trauma, like unusual. Yeah. You know, I'm fascinated by any black genius because, and pardon my expression, we all have what I call pedestrian traumas, which is we've all experienced some level of psychological, physical, or sexual abuse. Everyone, every culture, right? But to be here in this country and be black and to be like another five layers underneath something that no one can relate to and to be that what Tupac said, the rose that grew from the concrete, I think Marvin's a better exploration of those themes. I I, I guess the question is because there's so much of that Shakespearean element to it, like the Tupac series is obviously going to be very deep and very personal, but also has maps against these racial issues, these economic issues, these other issues that we talked about, and that will feel very contemporary. I don't know if you, do you have a name for you. Have, do you have a working title uh, for it? What's going on? What's currently? going on yeah. is the current yeah. working title. So is what's going on just like a biopic in the truest sense where it's like, yes, it might have some contemporary resonance, but what I'm really doing here is a deep psychological, historical excavation about this guy? Yeah. Or are you thinking about it more in the context of the quest of the summer of soul thing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is obviously not fiction, but has that like, hey, Here's a snapshot of a moment mm-hmm. that has a lot of current applicability. It's the doc, but you could do that with Marvin where like really focus on that period of 72, 73, mm-hmm. like, and be very socially conscious. Yeah, or you yeah. could go really deep on the psychological. Yeah. I guess that's the question. Like, where, what's your, what does your heart say about what this wants deep to be? Deep on the psychological, because it occurs to me with Marvin that you're really talking about, and I don't say this a lot, and I think people that say this, this always sounds pretentious. You're talking about a prophet. You know, you're talking about a guy that has that ability and the conflict we're talking about is his mortal trauma you know he has the ability to to move that stuff out of the way and to transmute these messages like what's going on i've literally played that in my yard i'm in nature you know whenever i play what's going on i swear to god the birds come in lower they fly differently there's just something about that album that is ethereal in ways i've never heard or felt vocal all of it you know so i think there truly was a prophet there that his mortal soul and sins and sex conflicted with. Yeah. And I, I love studying that. Yeah. Tupac the same. I think I think Tupac is a prophet. He just got cut down yeah. too short. And I don't say that lightly either. I think there are some people like Muhammad Ali, like Richard Pryor, yeah. like Bruce Lee, yeah. that your friend Rizza referred to as a minor prophet. Yeah. He said, there's major <laughs> prophets and minor prophets. I go, why do you give Bruce the minor <laughs> prophet? Right. Uh, that's what I want to explore like. There are these individuals that have that thing. When the stars line up, they know how to move this shit aside, and they become this terminal. And Marvel, what I love about this, this, what you're talking about with him, he's aware of when something's coming through him yes. and when it's him. It's yes. two different things, you know? So here I want to play one last piece of sound mm-hmm. just because you mentioned it so much, right? Mm-hmm. So 50 years ago is also what's going on, right? It's the what's that's going right. on. Wow. Right. So that's been around on. Wow, it's yeah. been around. It's been floating around. I want to play it because it's something you said right now. It'll be the last question. Okay. We'll, we'll get out of here. This is a live performance. Of you crying Brother, brother, brother There's far too many Of you dying You know we've got to find a way To bring some loving Here today Father, father We don't need to So 
you're watching him here. As you were talking, it made me think mm -hmm. about this. I, I never saw him live. I've only seen some of the video, but I've seen this. It's a good performance. Me neither. Yeah. It's a good performance. But but the thing about that is the first like three or four seconds of it. The, you were talking about the birds coming in lower when you play what's going on, right? Mm -hmm. You watch the audience. They're not just into him. There's like a magic spell mm -hmm. thing going on with the looks on their faces. Oh, yeah. It's yeah, not yeah. like I'm at a concert I like Marvin Gaye, but he's moving them in a way that's not just normal. Oh, we're standing up to applaud. There's just something like going on there. And it's something about the magic of that song. And, you know, it gets a lot of attention because of its social commentary, because the album was obviously of this moment. He was very conscious of writing this record that was mm -hmm. 1971 and everything that was going on. How do you cast it, man? Because like, because <laughs> Toughest thing. it's the fucking like, if you're doing the deep psychological dive and it's you're trying to capture the guy who could sing her mm -hmm. through grapevine like that a cappella and who makes the birds swoop in low and does that pixie mm -hmm. dust thing to those people in the audience. When we were making the Game Change movie, mm -hmm. there was a moment where we talked about, it was probably gonna be about Obama and Clinton and Richard Plepler at HBO said to us, we can't fucking cast Obama. He's in the White House right now. Oh, like, shit. He's Barack Obama's first black president. He's in the White House right now. No one could play him. Like no one could play him. You'd be like, wait, that's not, you know, mm -hmm. you, you could get someone to play Sarah Palin. She's not on TV every day. And she's mm -hmm. not the first black president of the United States. The casting thing in these situations is always hard. Mm -hmm. But that magic, that stuff you just described and that we just saw, how do you fucking solve that? I, I love you pointing out the, what the audience is feeling. Yeah. Music and voice, when it's in its purest form, is a spiritual language. When you see him right there, you go, that's what I mean, he's a prophet. Yeah. He, he's communicating that. The birds flying in low is not the social conscious part. No, I mean, the, no, 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 no. It's the, he, and he says it, he goes, I deliberately made the album easy listening to traffic in these heavier themes. Yes. What I did this in Defiant Ones that hasn't been done before, just at face in music, and I'm yeah, doing yeah. a lot with Tupac, as I get the multi-track, take the multi-track, so I got all the vocals, but I start to score the movie with few elements of the classic song, and then I start to deconstruct it, reconstruct it, whatever, use the audio. Uh, later in a death row sequence, we start, when it gets dark at death row and defined ones, you hear Marvin, oh, 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 I can't do it. The magic of his music is he has this whole background that's just all ethereal chanting. I've taken it out, John, it's not the same song. It's the thing that does that thing that you're talking about, but he can do it in one voice as well. My point is on the what's going on film with Marvin Gaye, I have all his all raw multi-track vocals. 50% of the magic is just to sit there and listen to it. You think that Grapevine is incredible acapella? Yeah. Wait till you hear all of it and the background vocals, the harmonies, the counter melodies and melodies. That's the power. Then you gotta get the guy in pocket. Now, whether he can sing or not, that doesn't matter. We have the real Marvin. It's whether he can embody that mischievous, yes. emotional, intelligent, tortured soul. Crackhead prophet, dude. Crackhead prophet. Crackhead prophet. <laughs> Crackhead prophet. Now that's going to be my new t-shirt. That's what they seem to do. Like free base prophet is what that is. Like base head prophet. Base head prophet. That's, that's it. T-shirts we're selling. You get, we'll get De La Sola come in. My brother's, my Marvin was a base head instead of my brother's a base head, right? I love that song. That's hilarious. That's a great song. And I, I promise, I swear to God, mm -hmm. I'm going to ask you this question. I'm not going to hold you to the answer. I understand this is a bullshit answer, okay? That almost certainly will not be true. But if you right now sat down and said, okay, we might have the Marvin movie done by like five years? It'll come out uh, 2024. So you're going to start shooting it next year? Yeah. Shoot, yeah, shoot, yeah, for shoot, sure. Shooting 23, have it out in For sure. Okay. Uh, but we have some good leads. We have to find the guy. That's yeah. the thing. Yeah. That's yeah. the thing. Yeah. That's why we don't I, that's find why, it. That's it's a greenlit picture. It's greenlit. That's why I don't think it's coming out in 2024. You may be right. I'm just, I'm just skeptical. Yeah. Me too. I tell hey, you a what, very hard fucking thing to do is cast. Last it. answer for you. Yeah. God bless whoever the powers that be and how it worked out. But it's an unprecedented deal. It's a greenlit movie. Yeah. Barring that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's like, it's in place. Yeah. Everything's in place. So if it does come out five years, you'll know that we didn't find the guy. Well, it's one yeah. of the things about being the the team from the Defiant Ones. That's how you get a pre-greenlit movie. You no, gotta yeah. get Dr. Dre, Jimmy Ivey, and Alan Hughes, <laughs> and get Motown to sign off on all the music rights for all the Marvin Gaye. That's, you can get that together, you get it, you get greenlit too. No I problem. Got, I gotta say something. It's a good film school lesson. It, it is. How do I get a greenlit film? Well, let me tell you, here's what all you gotta do. Here's the greater film school lesson because I went to recovery after the Defiant Ones for 30 days, not because I had a drug addiction, but because I was fucked up, <laughs> okay? And- In what way? What's that thing, that concept of dark soul of 
what is it called? The dark soul of, uh, um, I'll get back to it. Like when you, it's, it's almost a midlife crisis, right? Right. And I also was dependent to sleep. I was dependent on Xanax, which I didn't realize what benzos do to your yeah. brain ultimately. But, and I also need to get away from those two for, for, <laughs> for a while. Yes. But I was, well, just, so that could just be a vacation. Just to let you know, like you get away from them just by going. No, you got to get way more sophisticated yeah. than that. With yeah, them. Like, no, I'm yeah. fucked up. I'm in recovery. I got IVs. Literally yeah. went to recovery in, in the summer when it came out. This is the greatest film school lesson. Way after I learned all the lessons I learned on that film, we were going to go meet Barry Gordy to finally solidify the deals. Me, Dre, and Jimmy. And I'm on point now. Like, I got all my little proclivities in, in check. And I'm not saying, like, addictions. I'm just talking about bad habits. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I said, you know what? It's Barry Gordy. It's the top of the hill in Bel Air. We're trying to close this deal with him. It's never been closed, even though people thought they got close in the past. I'm going to show up 45 minutes early. So I drive up to Bel Air. And I'm rounding the corner where Barry Gordy's mansion is on the hill there. And as I'm rounding the corner, there's, is that Jimmy's Maybach parked right there on the street? I drive by. It's Jimmy sitting in the back of his Maybach. And I'm like, he was here before me? And I drive around to turn around and park. And further down the street is a tree. And underneath it was Dre's bulletproof Cadillac SUV. I just, Dre? Dre's here? One of the biggest epiphanies of my life, or whatever, Oprah's aha moment. I go, these motherfuckers have been famous and hits. Many, many times over. This was 2018 when this happened. Yeah. I said, they're billionaires. They're here before me. I said, this is not um, just a blessing or they're just talented. This is that Woody Allen line. 90% of it is showing up. Hell and High Water is a podcast from The Recount. Thanks again to Alan Hughes for being with us. Remember to check out Dear Mama, Alan's five-part series about the life of Tupac Shakur that premieres on FX later this year. If you like this episode, please subscribe to Hell and High Water and share us and rate us and review us on whatever app you happen to use to bask in the splendor of the podcast universe. I'm your host and the executive editor of The Recount, John Heilman. Grace Weinstein is a co-creator of Hell and High Water. Matthew Kaplowitz is our video editor. Christian Castro-Russell produced the episode. Margot Gray handled the research. And the one and only Marshall Eisen is our executive producer. 